According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. As we are looking at the appearance of Jesus to the disciples. We may do a little back and forth between Luke 24 and John 20. So if you want to find both chapters and leave a little bookmark in Luke, be a good idea. Luke 24 and John 20. In Luke's narrative, we don't have any indication of, of uh, Thomas being absent. We don't have any indication that uh, the Lord had to come back a second time <clears throat> in order for Thomas to be there. But in the Gospel of John, we have the detail that describes uh, the first time that Sunday night, and then eight days later, the following Monday, uh, when Thomas is finally there. So uh, let's pick up where we left off. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. Father, we rejoice in your faithfulness. We thank you for the grace provision that uh, provides for a lampstand where the word of God goes forth. And Father, we uh, just rejoice that uh, on this day, we're going to study to show ourselves approved and you're going to feed us. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 20. When it was e- verse 19 says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. All right, peace be with you. And uh, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. But now he adds to it in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you retain, forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. All right. We've got some notes on that coming up, I believe. Yes. We'll uh, study that as we reach that point of time. But then verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. The volitional choice that Thomas makes, choosing not to to place his faith in the risen Savior. And uh, we'll discuss that. We're going to discuss the obstinacy that uh, human beings seem to develop related to conditions that we want to place on God uh, that he has to meet before we will uh, 
uh, get with the program, as it were. He has to get with our program first before we're going to get with his program in terms of walking by faith. And that's uh, tragic, but uh, it is what it is, and we see it played out here in uh, in the life of Thomas. All right, now picking up where we left off, we've had three points of study, and we're in the midst of that third one where we detail the ascensions that we have to understand. So the context for this under point one with an A and a B, I'll pass by those. Uh, the Emmaus Road disciples were giving their full detailed explanation. This is when Jesus chose to appear, uh, choosing to not appear in their midst until uh, he had already uh, arranged for the previous witnesses, including Peter, including Mary Magdalene, including the other women at the tomb, including these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He has an assortment of these witnesses. They're all together testifying, having seen him, and then he stands in their midst. Peace be to you, we talked about. The Old Testament greeting and the New Testament expansion where we add grace to peace. Point three, the disciples were startled, frightened, troubled, and doubt-filled. Startled, frightened, troubled, and doubt-filled. Uh, some of that I don't blame them because uh, you don't expect for dead, you know, uh, just dead people to pop in out of nowhere. The doors are locked and you, you know, kind of expect if someone's going to show up in the room, they're going to knock on the door and you're going to let them in. And uh, so I don't blame them for being startled. Um, but then their wrong thinking has to be addressed. They thought wrongly about what they were seeing. They thought that they were observing a spirit, thought that they were observing a ghost. And uh, in fact, what they were seeing was uh, corresponding to what they had been hearing. So you got the combination of hearing and seeing now, and they still don't believe it. They're still struggling to come to grips with what it is that they are being told and what it is that they are seeing, even though what they are seeing is perfectly compatible with what they were hearing, (laughs) right? What they're seeing is Jesus, and what they were hearing about was that Jesus was alive. And um, they're not processing the combination of what they're hearing and what they're seeing. And so this... This is a problem. They thought wrongly about what they were seeing. They have to change their thinking. You have to replace the wrong thinking with right thinking. And uh, we can appreciate that. Jesus invited a physical examination. Touch me, feel me. This is at his urging, at his request. And so because of this, we have a contrast that has caused us to consider certain things. And I want to get right back to that here this morning where we left off last week. This invitation provides a stark reversal because he had a hands-off policy that morning. As the sun was coming up and he appeared before Mary Magdalene and she was clinging to him. She called him Raboni and she falls to his feet. And that's why I wanted to start off here with John 20 because we have that here in John 20. You can glance right up to uh, verses 16 and following here. And uh, she says, Rabboni, and Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now this forms the contrast. Also the message that she's supposed to take to the disciples. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Go and teach the disciples, or announce to the disciples, not teach, but announce to the disciples that I am going to ascend to my Father. And that's different. That's not. That's a different message than he gave the, the women when he, the women were, were uh, going to the disciples and telling them that he was going to meet them in Galilee. All right, remember that? When he met the other women at the tomb, he said, go and report to Peter and all the rest that I am going before them into Galilee and they will meet me in Galilee. Jesus doesn't say anything about Galilee to Mary Magdalene. 
He says, go and tell these disciples that I'm ascending to the Father. Okay? Two different messages. Two different messages. And this one's important. That I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So the other women come and say, we've seen the Lord. He said to, to meet him in, in Galilee. Uh, the two disciples show up from the Emmaus Road and say, we saw the Lord. We had dinner with him in Emmaus. Peter shows up and says, I've seen the Lord. And I don't know what he told Peter. And now uh, the Lord himself stands in their midst. And so this I've not yet ascended is the issue. The reason why I was hands off was I have not yet ascended. I have not yet ascended. But by the evening now, he's inviting them to touch him. He's inviting the disciples, touch me, feel me, see that I'm, I'm flesh and bone. So that objection that existed in the morning doesn't exist anymore. That objection that, that was there in the morning doesn't exist anymore. The objection, I've not yet ascended to the Father, is no longer an issue because in between the morning and the evening, he has ascended to his Father. This proves an ascension prior to the final ascension. This proves at least two. All right? And I think we, we have more than that. We have, may have three or four. So this proves an ascension prior to his final ascension ten days before Pentecost. Now, you don't have to believe this if you don't want to. You could just say, well, Jesus is a flake. In the morning, he said, hands off. In the evening, he said, touch me. Okay? Believe what you want to believe. I see two separate issues, and I think there's a significance to them. All right. Now, if so, we need to consider just how many ascensions might there have been. How often was he back and forth? And I think he was all over the place. I think he was back and forth repeatedly. I think he was in Emmaus one moment, and he was in Jerusalem another moment, he was in Galilee another moment. I think he was all over the place. Walking along a beach, walking along a road. All right? Going where he needed to be for his various appearances. So, um, I think we covered the first one, and I left off with captivity. So let's... Yeah, we want to pick up on captivity again. We covered the first one already. Ascending to God the Father fulfills the vision of Daniel and invests all authority in heaven and earth in God the Son. I think there's a basis for which when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. At the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that we understand that that authority was given to him and that authority was given to him by the Ancient of Days on his judicial throne. All right? And we have to understand this. And I think um, putting these passages together in this way makes sense. Matthew 28, 18. I'm going to read them in backwards order again like I did last week. Matthew 28, 18. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Remember the women? He met the women at the grave and he said, Go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. There's a message he's going to have to deliver there on a mountain. He's going to have to appear before 500 at one time. It's going to be a large crowd. And so when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay? We've got to pay attention to that. I realize that gets passed over. That's a throwaway phrase. That's a verse that people ignore because they're in such a hurry to get to the Great Commission verse. They're in such a hurry to get to the go or to get to the make disciples or to 
Lo, I'm with you always. All right. They want to. They want to put the emphasis on verses 19 and 20, and as such, they ignore the basis for the Great Commission. Right? What's the basis for the Great Commission? What if I gave you a commission today? I give you a commission to uh, whatever. Just make something up. I, and and <laughs> I give you a commission to go do something. I give you a commission to. Um, uh, march down to the governor's mansion and walk on into the place and deliver a message to uh, to Governor Perry. All right, and uh, you would go down there with my commission in hand, and uh, the DPS troopers at the gate would promptly um, arrest you, <laughs> and, and they would not let you in, and uh, you would not be permitted to storm on in there like you own the place and 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 give deliver my my. Uh, message to uh to the governor why not because they would look at you and say who are you and they would look at your commission with my signature on it saying who's that guy right on what basis are you even here with this supposedly great commission right or not so great commission okay so this is why it's important that's why you cannot throw away verse 18 this is why uh if if we don't understand the doctrine of verse 18 then the great commission in 19 and 20 makes no sense on what basis does the church go into this world to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. On what basis do we preach the gospel to all creation? It's on the basis of the Great Commission, on the basis of all authority in heaven and on earth. Okay, That tandem, pay attention to that tandem. We're, we're going to come back to that. That tandem's coming back again when Jesus is, is uh, showing his side and talking to the disciples and saying, what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If you forgive the sins of any, they shall be forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they shall be retained. What is the dynamic between heaven and earth in this church age? And why is that significant for you and I as a heavenly people? Okay, We've got to come to grips with that. Otherwise, we just have an earthly understanding of the church. And How pathetic is it to, have, to be limited to an earthly understanding of, of the church when the church is a heavenly people? To me, that's ridiculous. All right. So, ascending to God the Father fulfills the vision of Daniel and invests all authority in heaven and earth in God the Son. Daniel chapter 7, real quickly. Daniel chapter 7, because I know we covered this already. Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13, 14, and 22. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Was presented before him. So here is an ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, before God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So this is, uh, has to be included in the all, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This has to be included in the all, otherwise the all isn't all. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here is where Jesus Christ receives authority. All right. 
invests all authority in heaven and on earth in God the Son. Down to verse 22. Um, this other one, this other beast, this uh, counterfeit, who tries to usurp that authority, it's not for him. The, um, that fourth beast is, uh, has been judged uh, and he's been found wanting. That uh, Daniel wants to know about this beast and this horn and the boasting and all this, the crushing and trampling and all this stuff. And uh, verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. All right, there it is. All authority has been given to the Son and saints in the Son. Okay, important that we understand that. Now, church's mystery in the book of Daniel, we can't have a complete understanding of who those saints there are but anyway save that for future study so there's a reason why the son has to ascend one reason to ascend is to be presented to the ancient of days and to have the entire universe granted to jesus christ right heaven and earth all authority in heaven and earth granted to jesus christ and god the father rules on behalf of his faithful son and he rules against the dragon and the dragon's counterfeit son that's what's happening here in daniel Chapter 7, all right? A second reason why the Son has to ascend is to lead captives captive. Psalm 47, 5 and Psalm 68, 18. Another reason why he has to ascend is to lead captives captive. And as we break down these four reasons for ascending, we then have to ask ourselves, did he do all four in the same ascension? Or did he have a separate ascension for each one? Uh, which you know, which ascension was it that he received all authority? Okay, it couldn't have been the final ascension because he told the disciples about it before he did had that final ascension. Leading captives captive. Did, did he do that one in the final ascension, or the first ascension, or one of the earlier ones? When did he lead captives captive? All right, Psalm forty-seven five. God has ascended with a shout. Let's back up a little bit. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. A great king over all the earth. So what's the context for this? Sovereignty. The context for this is his reign, is his victory. All right. Now keep in mind, in first advent, he came in humility first advent he came in uh, humbly riding on a colt he didn't demand the kingdom he didn't conquer until the cross and then of the cross he did conquer and he achieved a victory and he disarmed the foes and the father led a triumph in him we, d- we discussed what he was doing during his three days in the grave when he had a victorious proclamation in uh, in Sheol. A great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. All right, so he's ascending in this reign. He's not taking a throne in Jerusalem. He's ascending. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of God on, uh, of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. All right, so there is an ascension with a shout, with a trumpet, 
and reasons to be praised. Over to Psalm 68. Over to Psalm 68. Another ascent. This one with gifts. Again, where do I want to back up here? Because <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on in Psalm 68. Uh, when you notice um, marching through the wilderness in verse 7, uh, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped, rain at the presence of God, Sinai quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. That's in verse 8. Um Verse 11, the Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. And blessings of uh, preaching good news and putting armies to flight. Uh, When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. Man, what's going on here? (laughs) Okay. Uh, verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Okay, now there's a lot going on here, and it deals with angelic conflict. It deals with, you know, Bashan, the bulls of Bashan are the, the adversaries that were surrounding Christ on the cross in Psalm 22. Uh, m- much of this is in the angelic application. Um, Mountains are authority. Mountains are kingdoms. And they're jealous. Satan wants to be like the Most High God. Okay? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Uh, Verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Okay, so... um, The Lord is among them. The Lord is on the earth again as He was at Sinai. But this time he's come in humility. This time he's come to redeem. That time he redeemed them out of bondage from Egypt. This time he's redeeming them from bondage of sin. This time he's going to bring them from the, from the. Uh, uh, he's going to have victory at the cross and and redeem humanity from sin. Verse eighteen: You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. All right, so when he ascends, he leads captive your captives and received gifts among men. So here's a reason why he had to ascend. He had captives that had to be rescued, captives that had to be brought forth. There were an entire body of redeemed that were saved, that uh, had eternal life, but weren't in heaven, right? Why weren't they in heaven? Because their sins were simply covered. They were passed over. God had forgiven their sins and passed over their sins, but their sins weren't removed. The sins aren't removed until the the blood of Christ. The the sins aren't removed until the Lamb of God comes who takes away the sin of the world. And so every Old Testament believer who dies doesn't go to heaven. Every Old Testament believer dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, goes to paradise. Jesus told the thief, this day will be with me in paradise. All right. And we saw Abraham there and Lazarus. Uh, we saw, um, what, what else did we see? Uh, Samuel. The prophet Samuel was there and 
resting until the the witch of Endor uh, disturbed his rest and brought him up in a vision. But he was in paradise. He was in a place of comfort. He said, why have you disturbed my rest? All right, but they weren't in heaven. Huge difference between then and now. Today, absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Today, when believers die, we're, we're ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ. Okay? Today, paradise is in the third heaven. We're told when Paul was snatched up to paradise, he was snatched up to the third heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. So how come paradise used to be in Sheol and now paradise is in heaven? It got moved. See? It got moved. So leading captives captive, transferring paradise to the third heaven. Luke 23, 43 is, Behold, this I truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. That was the words of Jesus to the uh, repentant thief on the cross. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Take a look at that. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. <clears throat> Theological interpretation of Psalm 68. In Psalms, Jesus is receiving gifts. In Ephesians, Jesus is giving gifts, right? And we're okay with this. <laughs> the same Holy Spirit inspired Psalms is the same Holy Spirit that inspired Hebrews or uh, Ephesians. And as he makes an adaptation of uh, the one text to suit the other purpose, that's fine. You and I aren't free to rewrite the Bible for, for such aims, but, but he's free to do that. It's his Bible. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. See, we have a gift. We understand the unity we're supposed to have in the church. Um, Ephesians 4 starts off, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling with which you have been called. Understand who you are in Christ and walk that way. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's our prime mandate in the body of Christ. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. This is our, our, our priesthood in the, in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there is a unity... There's also a variety because in our unity one towards another, we are going to be exercising our giftedness, which is different. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you see how we have both unity and variety. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to man. Now, this is an adaptation from Psalm, because in Psalm it says he received gifts from men. Here he's now giving gifts. But you understand, this, this is now taking the, the passage that applies to Israel and now adapting it for the church. Because it's not the church is not getting rescued out of Abraham's bosom and brought up to heaven. Right? We understand that. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's pleased to give gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? It's a theological conclusion you come to. You can't descend, I mean, you can't ascend unless you first descended. If you're not, you can't go up if you're not first down. Okay? 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. And boy, when he ascended, he, he ascended positionally higher than he ever had before. He had a glory greater than he ever had before because he was humble to the point of death. He was victorious on the cross. The glory that he, that, that he got after he picked up his privileges was greater than the glory he had when he laid aside his privileges. You understand that? In the, in the kenosis, when he laid aside his privileges and he humbled himself, that's the glory he had with the Father before the world was. And in John 17, he said, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. And the Father said, oh yeah, yeah you're going to get that back and more. And more. Because the glory that you pick up and the additional glory the Father bestows upon him is greater. Greater. Okay? And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Okay? And here are some of the gifts that Jesus is pleased to distribute to his bride. Presents that he distributes to his bride. You know, these are bridal gifts, as it were, to his uh, espoused bride. And uh, this is different than a lot of other spiritual gift passages where we talk about the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to individuals, right? The Holy Spirit gave me my pastor-teacher gift the day I got saved, right? Um, A lot of spiritual gift passages talk about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to believers. This passage actually talks about gifted believers that Jesus Christ gives to congregations, to different lampstands. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. There's four some ases. All right. And what he's giving are gifted believers to congregations for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. All right. So leading captives captive, transferring paradise to the third heaven. This was a purpose for the ascension, for one of the ascensions. We've got to ask ourselves, which ascension was it? And we may, we may move them around and reorder them a little bit and think of them in different ways. But at, at which ascension was it that he emptied out Abraham's bosom? In which ascension was it that he brought them with a shout, with a trumpet we saw in Psalm 47? I think it required a military escort, required a, an angelic escort. Okay. We know there will be additional angelic escorts and trumpets for the rapture. In any event. All right. A third reason. Jesus needed to go to heaven and cleanse the heavenly temple. Cleansing the heavenly temple. When did he do this? Cleansing the heavenly temple. Join me in Hebrews 9. Point C, cleansing the heavenly temple. A third reason for the ascension of Jesus Christ was to cleanse the heavenly temple. And if he did all this at the, basically all at the final ascension, well then, did he do it before he sat down? (laughs) Okay. You know, did he sit down and then get back up again to cleanse the temple? Well, you know, um... I think he did this on, a, on an ascension prior to the final ascension. The final ascension was when he arrived and took his seat. He took his seat and commenced his session ministry. The Father said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
So uh, I, don't, I don't think cleansing the heavenly temple could have come after that in a sequence. Okay? I think it must have come prior to taking his seat. Maybe it was prior to leading captives captive or after. Hmm. All right. You realize a lot of our ponderings of before and after are a little bit inappropriate because heaven is really outside of time, right? I mean, yeah, there's a sequence, there's order, and I understand that the seven seals are in an order and a sequence. Uh, and I think we can think of these logically in an order and a sequence. But when we're all said and done, I don't think we can prove what order they were done in. Okay. Cleansing the heavenly temple, Hebrews chapter 9. Now, uh, early on, we've got a description of um, the earthly temple and uh, everything that takes place there. Uh, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies. And it goes on to describe these things. And uh, verse 6, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed to committed in ignorance. All right, now, everything in this section kind of assumes that the temple in Jerusalem still exists, that it's still standing, that this is still going on to the day that the author of Hebrews is writing this. And uh, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Okay, so we can date the book of Hebrews to prior to 70 AD. The the temple is still operational. The Romans haven't destroyed it yet. I suspect uh, even prior to 66 AD, probably even prior to the the commencement of that war and the uh, laying siege to Jerusalem. All right, and um, a symbol for the present time in verse 9, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Regulations that were applicable in the Mosaic era that will not be applicable after the reality exists, that is, the work of Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, when did he do that? The greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Remember, the the tabernacle Moses built and the temple that Solomon built, they were patterned after the heavenly reality, the heavenly temple. The, the one made without hands, the one not of this creation. That's the one that Christ went into. Now, when did he do that? When we read, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read all the, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. He went on the cross. He died on the cross. He says it is finished. The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two, but he didn't go in there. He hung on the cross and he gave up his spirit. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And he never went into the earthly replica. He wasn't qualified to. Only the Levites. He wasn't Levitical. That wasn't his priesthood. 
Right? He just broke the veil and showed that empty room for what it was. Showed that empty room. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no mercy seat. When they came back from Babylon, that was that was long gone. The the, the Ark is missing since the, the Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the, the first temple. No one knows, except Indiana Jones, where it went. Okay? So they came back from Babylon and they built the new temple, smaller than Solomon's temple. The old men wept. And they furnished everything with all the furnishings they could bring back from Babylon, but the one thing they couldn't bring back from Babylon was what was missing. There was no Ark of the Covenant. They, they made a holy holies, they put a veil up in front of it, an empty room. Okay? Because something better than the, the mercy seat was on the way. And when Jesus walked this earth, <laughs> He was here. Okay? So He dies on the cross, the veil is rent in two, that empty room is exposed. And he goes to the third heaven. Now, when does he do this? Cleansing the heavenly temple. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, I believe this was done um, after the um, physical death. I believe this was done, hard to say, um, he tells Mary, I've not yet ascended to my father. Um, but I, I think he could have already done this ascension, gone to the temple and not to the father. Uh, he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, not through blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered into the heavenly temple with his own blood. Okay? Bowls of his own blood. He entered up there. Okay? I think it was likely after the, um, the, the, the presentation of the Father. I can't see him doing this before he's presented in the Daniel 7 presentation. Okay? I think it was done after he spoke to Mary Magdalene and said, I haven't ascended yet. In any event, on one of these ascensions, this is what he's going to do. This is what he did. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, killing the animal is not sufficient. Killing the animal doesn't finish the work. You can kill the sacrificial goat, but until you take the, the blood and sprinkle it where it needs to be sprinkled, the blood's not applied. So Jesus dying on the cross is necessary, but where does that blood got to get sprinkled? Okay? Finish the picture. Dying on the cross is only part of the picture. The blood's got to get sprinkled. It's got to get sprinkled. So that's what Jesus does, because he's not only the, the offering, he's the offerer. He's the priest. He is the sacrifice, but he's also the priest. And so he goes into the heavenly temple, okay, with his own blood. 
a bowl of, of his own, you know, the bowl that, you know, like, like the angels have these bowls of incense, and we're told in heaven that the incense are the prayers of the saints. And so we're down here on earth and we're praying, and up in heaven our prayers are manifest as incest. I mean, in, oh my goodness. Delete that off the MP3. Incense. That's embarrassing. Why are those words so close? All right. So our prayers in heaven have a, have a manifestation, okay? Likewise, the blood of Christ in heaven has a manifestation. Not, uh, not his literal blood, you know, his hemoglobin just, you know, from his physical body dripped down and went where it went. When the, when the soldier stabbed the spear in there, blood and water came pouring out. That's where his earthly physical blood went, Okay. But when he appeared in heaven as the high priest of the good things to come, his blood was manifested in whatever bowl, golden bowl it was, all right, with a heavenly representation. And he went into the heavenly temple and he cleansed it. He cleansed it. And you'll notice he had to cleanse it. And the... um, it was necessary, okay? Uh, verse 23, it was necessary. What do we see here? Um, verse 21, In the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You want to cleanse the nation? Shedding of blood. You want forgiveness? Shedding of blood. Sin offering? Shedding of blood. Trespass offering? Shedding of blood. Peace offering? Shedding of blood. Okay? Fig leaves don't cut it. (laughs) Shedding of blood. Get the skin off that animal so you can have the covering of your nakedness. Shedding of blood. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these but the heavenly things, notice, it is necessary for the heavenly things themselves must be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. The heavenly temple required a cleansing. The heavenly temple was defiled to Satan's fall. The heavenly temple required a cleansing. And the blood of goats wasn't going to do it. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but Christ entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. (laughs) Every year. We just had it. Okay? Every year. Day of atonement. Every year. Day of atonement. Every year. Here we go again. Year after year after year after year with blood not his own. Not, not so with Jesus Christ, once and for all. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. You know, For that blood to be accepted, the Christ had to be crushed. He had to suffer for the Father to accept, to be satisfied with the substitutionary sacrifice. No, I'm not going to do that year after year after year. Once. At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) All right. Once and for all. Once and for all. So, he had to ascend to the Father to fulfill the vision of Daniel and receive all authority in heaven and earth. He had to ascend to the Father to lead captives captive and transfer uh, paradise to the third heaven. He had to ascend to heaven to cleanse the heavenly temple. He had priestly work to do in uh, the heavenly temple. Fourthly, he had to ascend to heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand. To be seated at the Father's right hand. The fourth and final reason. Point D, being seated at the Father's right hand. Acts 1, 9 through 11, Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, 1 Peter 3, 22. We could add to that. Uh, we could add uh, his advocate role in 1 John 2, 2. We could add a number of things to that. But what is he doing seated at the Father's right hand? I'm going to close our series before we end Life of Christ series. We're going to close with an episode that's not on your harmony, but we're going to discuss what he is doing in session. What he is doing in session. Once he has arrived, he's taken his seat. What does he do now as the head of the church in session? And then we'll consider the series over. All right. Acts chapter 1. Join me there. Acts chapter 1. I like this chapter. You can think of this as the Gospel of Luke Part 2, the sequel. Both of them are written to Theophilus. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. See, after his suffering. What is it that accomplished our salvation? Yeah, the passion of the Christ. His suffering. It qualified him to the point where his, his uh, spiritual work would be accepted by God the Father. He also appeared, presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. We're thankful that we have this verse, otherwise we wouldn't really know with uh, the women and Mary and the Emmaus Road disciples and uh, walking along the beach and a couple of upper upper room episodes. Um, If we didn't have uh, John 20, we didn't have uh, Acts 1, we wouldn't really have a time frame for the ascension. We know that Pentecost was 50 days. Um, but here we're told for a period of 40 days of resurrection ministry. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. So he's taken them to Galilee. He's given them the great commission. And then he has them return back to Jerusalem again. It says, here is where you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) All right. It's not. They're about 2,000 years early. They don't know anything about the church yet. It's, It's remarkable. Um, but this is what's on their mind. This is where their focus is, and it has been for a long, long time. Okay, this is why they didn't like the the talk of crucifixion. This is why they didn't want the idea of his death and going away. They 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 struggled with all those messages because they were wrapped up in the coming kingdom. When Messiah comes, he's going to live forever. When Messiah comes, he's going to deliver the kingdom. They didn't like that death talk. Well, they survived all that. Now, now he's alive again. Okay, put us through all that, Lord. Don't do that again. Uh, are we uh, now? Can we have our kingdom now? Okay. And you realize that... Um, you notice they don't ask anything about John 13 through 17? <laughs> they don't ask anything about what, you know, loving one another or uh, my father's house or many dwelling places. They don't ask anything about abiding in him and bearing fruit. They don't ask about uh, the, Holy, the coming Holy Spirit. They don't ask about anything in, in the upper room discourse of John 13 through 17. They don't ask anything about the, the mystery doctrine he began to unveil before them in those chapters. They want to know about the kingdom. They're asking a Jewish question from the standpoint of the Jewish stewardship. So he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, didn't he already breathe on them to receive the Holy Spirit in John 20? Okay. He did. But this is, uh, that's an Old Testament outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They've got to have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to start the church. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. My witnesses. Here's a prime church activity. Bearing witness both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. I I call this the final ascension. The final ascension. Because those previous ones, he came back. Came back repeatedly and kept teaching them more and had uh, had 40 days of resurrection ministry. But this one here, he didn't come back. He's promised to come back. He hadn't come back yet. Because when he comes back, he's got to take us to heaven. He's up there now preparing mansions, preparing a place for us to live in, John 14. So when he comes back, it's going to be with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so I uh, lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, <laughs> I love this. I hope this is on video. I'm going to see this. I want to see this. I want to see these 12 guys all staring, you know, looking like turkeys in the rain, all looking up in the, in the sky. And two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> You know, what are you doing? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. All right, so they return to Jerusalem. They've got 10 days now, 10 days to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, um, 
Ephesians 1. Let's look at these. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. Power that's available to us now in the church. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? The hyperbolistic power that's directed towards us. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, which God the Father brought about in Christ when God the Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So being seated at the Father's right hand. 1 Peter 3.22 And because he's seated at the Father's right hand, we have hyperbolistic power directed towards us in the church. 1 Peter 3.22 Talking about baptism and what it signified then and what it corresponds to now. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not in the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are sprinkled clean. We are dead and alive in Christ. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. We are washed clean in ways that animal ritual never could. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples. All right. So the fourth reason why he had to ascend was to be seated at the Father's right hand. All right. So there's four possible ascensions. And in what order did they take place in? I think the last one was Acts 1. The other ones preceded that. When did they happen? I think the first one, A, happened in between the morning and the evening after he told Mary Magdalene, hands off, and before he uh, told the disciples, touch me. And then uh, sometime in the, over the next 40 days, when did he uh, lead the captives captive? When did he cleanse the heavenly temple? Okay. At some point in those next 40 days. Back to John 20 then, and let's take a look at flesh and bone, point four. Flesh and bones is a remarkable expression not entirely equal to flesh and blood. Luke 24, 39. Luke 24, 39. And leave it to Dr. Luke to give us the, uh, the most accurate of the physiological descriptions. Luke 24, 39. It doesn't say flesh and blood. He says, I'm not a spirit. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Why does he use the idiom flesh and bones instead of flesh and blood? The much more common flesh and blood. Luke 24, 39. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For 
A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, uh, it is a remarkable description. It is not entirely equal. It's not a pure synonym. Why not? To the expression flesh and blood. That's the much more common expression. Matthew 16, 17. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Galatians 1, 16. Ephesians 6, 12. Hebrews 2, 14. We would say flesh and blood is the normal expression. Flesh and blood is the normal expression. So why does he not use flesh and blood here? Why doesn't he say, hey, touch me, feel me, see that I'm not, see that I'm flesh and blood? He says, I'm flesh and bone. Why does he not say, I'm flesh and blood? All right. Matthew 16, 17. We'll see these other passages here that relate to flesh and blood. I'll just give you something to chew on, something to think about. It's a what if. It's a maybe. You can think about it or reject it. Okay. Matthew uh, sixteen seventeen. Um, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so a couple of things. Flesh and blood, it's an idiom that speaks of humanity. We get that. But more than that, it's a contrast between a earthly sphere and a heavenly sphere. That is not something that, he was, that, that Peter just learned in, in earthly experience, but it came from a heavenly revelation. My Father who is in heaven. There's an earthly and heavenly contrast in view when you're talking flesh and blood. 1 Corinthians 15.50 Flesh and blood cannot inherit, we're told here. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So again, we have a description of humanity. We're called flesh and blood. Okay, we get that. But more than that, it's perishable. Flesh and blood is perishable. Okay, perishable does not inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. Flesh, the, the imperishable body cannot be flesh and blood because the perishable body is flesh and blood. You see that? So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you try to go to heaven and that body you've got there, it's not gonna ma- you're not going to make it. Couldn't survive the trip. And even if you somehow got there, you'd be incinerated by the glory of the light once you were there. But notice, again, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood is perishable. What we're going to have is going to be different. It won't be flesh and blood. It's going to be imperishable. Uh, Galatians 1.16. I'm running out of time. It's already two minutes to the top of the hour. Galatians 1.16. When God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul did not receive his training from humanity. Went out into the uh, wilderness of Arabia and was trained by the Lord himself. Described here as not flesh and blood. 
Uh, Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with rulers and authorities and principalities and powers. So I understand that it is a term that applies to humanity, but it also contrasts with the spiritual dimension. I think, I think it would be inappropriate for Jesus to say, touch me and feel me and see that I'm flesh and blood. He's not flesh and blood anymore. He's now in his resurrection body. is described as flesh and bone. All right. Tangible, touchable, tactile, but not flesh and blood. Because it's not mortal humanity any longer. It's now immortal humanity. Immortal, imperishable, glorified humanity is not flesh and blood. It's flesh and bone. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers of powers, world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Finally, Hebrews 2.14, the last of these. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He partook in flesh and blood. He was true humanity to achieve the victory in that realm. All right, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Well, now he's equipped to come to our aid. To come to our aid. All right. Now, we'll come back to this next week and talk about this because we've got to talk about soul life. Soul life that's in the blood. We're going to talk about the uh, impact of blood through the Old Testament and what the blood was like. with the blood of Christ. So we'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the resurrection. We're looking forward to uh, being out of this flesh and blood body that we have, this uh, earthly tent, Father, which was never designed to be permanent and uh, to be clothed with the heavenly. We've borne the image of the earthly. So too, Father, shall we bear the image of the heavenly. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.